First reading, as we turn in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 42, the 42nd chapter of the book of Isaiah, and we commence our reading of the verse 1. Let us hear God's holy word together. The Lord help us, give us ears to hear and hearts now to receive his precious and sacred word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have sent judgment in the earth and the isles that shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will uphold thine hand, I will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images." Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof, let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, and the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rocks sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holden my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs. And I will make the rivers islands. And I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. And I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. We turn now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, and the fourth chapter. The Gospel of Luke, and the fourth chapter. Commencing our reading of the verse 16. This is the Word of God. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach 
the gospel to the poor, for he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance unto the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless the public reading of his precious word. Well, dear friends, I'd like to turn your prayerful attention this evening to the words that I believe that the Lord has been laying upon my spirit over the last few weeks here in Isaiah 42 and the verse 8 I take for my text. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Amen. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. These words are spoken some 700 years before the coming of the Saviour into this world. Isaiah ministered, as we thought this morning from 739 B.C., uh, for some 54 years after that. At the time in Israel's history and Judah's history was really bleak and people were given over to idolatry. Just like the other nations in Canaan, it was a bleak time. You notice the previous chapter, how there is a great indictment not only to the people of Judah and Israel, but we could say the whole world, the Canaanite world and other far countries stemming beyond uh, notice how idols were made, and we're told in verse 1 of chapter 41, Keep silence before me, O islands. That's the distant ones. And let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. In other words, God is summoning the whole mass, as it were, not only of those engaged in idolatry in Judah and Israel and the Canaanites, but all men. This is the great indictment that man has given himself over to idols and made those idols to be God. And he says, can they speak? Can they tell the future? Can they do anything? And of course, the answer is they can do nothing. And the Lord is incensed. And uh, all they that worship these idols, ought to be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and thou shalt not find them, even them that contend with thee, they that war against thee, shall be as nothing. For I, the Lord, thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. The Lord would help Israel, but they that put their trust in idols, uh, he speaks here of, in verse 7 and onward about the carpenter who makes an image, the carpenter who makes or, or the man that fashions an image by a stone. These things have to be nailed down lest they totter down. I mean, didn't they learn what happened to Dagon in the temple? 
how he fell over. What can idols do? Can they speak? When Paul was there in Acts chapter 17, how he was grieved in his heart, not just in the days here of Judah, but centuries later, how he was grieved in his heart and men had made idols. And I suppose the human heart, as Martin Luther said, is an idol factory, isn't it? We may not make graven images, but man will be taken up with something. But friends, there is nothing in all this world that is worthy of our hearts. We are made in the image of God, aren't we? Made to know God, as we thought this morning. Made in that image of God, in holiness and righteousness. But man has fallen. And while the heavens and the earth out there, they declare the glory of God, sticks and stones and images, things formed, did not make the things that are formed. God, the unseen God, has made the heavens and the earth The psalmist says, the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God day unto day, night unto night. These things, they speak of a creator God who spoke everything out of nothing. God said, not only let there be light, but we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The all-powerful God spoke Ex nihilo, everything out of nothing came into existence. In six literal days, he made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and sanctified it. And men, ever since then, were meant to praise God and to rest on that day. But we know what had happened. Even Adam and Eve had made an idol out of that forbidden fruit in the garden. We know that, don't we? Remember how the devil enticing Eve, saying, well, God is withholding this from you. He, knowing the devil planting false thoughts in her mind, God knows, he said, the day you take of this, you shall be as him. But of course, it was the greatest anticlimax. What they knew and began to experience was their sin and their shame. It was pride that fueled all of that, wasn't it? Wanting to be great. And man has ever since then made many inventions of God. Are we not reminded of this in Ecclesiastes 7? That God made man upright, but since he has made many inventions. Now, look at the idols here in this very chapter. Man is thinking that these idols can save him, that they can bring him good. These things are nothing. These are the things that made uh, God has made from the earth and men fashion something and make it to be a God. But God promised our first parents, didn't he, way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, to send in the fullness of time the seed of the woman. So this is a court scene. God says here in chapter 41, Come, let us come for judgment. He summons, as it were, the whole world. It's a great court scene. And there in that court scene, there is silence. The idols cannot speak. The people cannot speak. They're undone. But you notice 
chapter 42, verse 1. Let me read from verse 29 of chapter 41. Behold, they're all vanity, that's these idols, and their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. But then one, as it were, walks in to the courtroom scene. There are four servant songs, as you perhaps know, in the prophecy of Isaiah. And here this is the first one, speaking of the Savior, the servant of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus, who was to come, the true servant of Israel. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment. Again, it's that same word that we considered this morning. Literally, deliverance unto the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. And we know that these words are quoted in the Gospel of Matthew and they have to do with our blessed Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. He who was tender, he who was lowly, he who, though he made the heavens and the earth, said, come, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Of course, he would preach in the streets, but he would not, as it were, be brazen. He would not be rash, brash. And how would he treat the bruised reed? What is a bruised reed? Well, I suppose it's a good picture of us, isn't it? We by nature are like the tall reeds that grow in the marshes. And really, they're of no value. That's us, isn't it? He shall not break a bruised reed. By nature, we're as those tall reeds growing up and easily blown down in the wind. But he does not, he might bruise the reed, but he does not break it. It's what we're told. A bruised reed he shall not break. These are the poor in spirit. These are the meek. These are the lowly. And a smoking flax, one whose light, as it were, is about to go out. He feels so low, so poor. What does the Lord do to such a one who is laid low in his sin, who is convicted in his sin or her sin? The Lord shall not break that bruised reed. That one who is about to go out, a smoking flax, shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment or deliverance unto truth. Isn't that wonderful? He brings sinners to the truth. It's that word again can be employed to mean deliverance unto the truth. And has he not done that in many a heart? I think of how long I lived in pagan darkness, my friends. In Catholic idolatry. But God in his mercy brought me, delivered me to the truth. To the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I thought that it was through the priest. I thought it was by some of the means that I could have union with God, but there is only one high priest who made an offering once for all his people and now ever liveth to intercede for them. He shall not fail. He shall not be discouraged. We know that this is of Christ because we read there, didn't we, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and that place that it was uh, read there, how he, as we read here, notice this very one, how he was appointed to open up the eyes of the blind, 
verse 7, and to bring out the prisoners from the prison, that's the prison of sin, and them that sit in darkness of the prison house. Of course, it's not speaking of a literal prison, either at Colchester or somewhere down the road. Those that have done crimes, but those who were in bondage to Satan and who were blind to the Lord. I am the Lord. We come to our verse this evening. I am the Lord. That is my name. Salvation, in other words, is going to speak of here. I am the Lord. You notice in all of these verses here, the Lord is saying, I shall open the eyes. I shall unstop the deaf ears. I will open the prison house. Why? Because I am the Lord. What was our state? Helpless. My friend, till a sinner sees that he has no hope but God, he's blind. Blind. And really our text this evening is the glory of God, as we see it here in verse 8. What a verse for the coming year. Not only as we preach the gospel, but in all that we do as God's people. Why did God and why has God saved you if you are a Christian? What's the reason? Ultimately for his glory. We're told this by the Apostle Paul, aren't we, in Romans 8? Why has he chosen some vessels to be vessels of mercy, to show the riches of his grace? to show the glory of his grace. Why are some fitted to destruction? To show his power. That God is a God of justice. That God is also, friends, blessed be God, thank God, he's a God of mercy. He's not come to call the righteous. Those that think that they're good. Those that think that they're worthy. Paul says, does he not, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's wonderful news for me, isn't it? And for you, if we're Christians. And you see, all of this will redound God's salvation by sending his son, this beloved son of his, he walks in, as it were, the courtroom, the whole earth, is gathered together. Let us come for judgment. Let us see men's idols. Let us see what men men believe will save them and save them from their enemies and save them from the great day of wrath. What will an idol do on the great day of wrath? And you know, even some will have a crucifix and they think a crucifix might save them on the day of wrath. But friends, it was the one upon that cross, wasn't it? It was the one on that cross in whom we have our hope and in whom God is glorified. Here behold my servant in whom I uphold mine elect, in whom is my soul delighteth. I've put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment or deliverance unto the Gentiles. He will not cry, he will nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard. He is the gentle Lord who would come to this world. He would be despised by the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders. He who is very God. He who could read their thoughts, their minds. He who knew them. And yet tender was he. Now we want to think this evening, first of all, 
as we come to verse 8 on God's glory, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. You see, verse 8 comes in the context, does it not, of what? Salvation. In salvation, the only salvation, that's God's salvation, God is glorified. The word glory, well, the word in the Hebrew is a, is a tremendous word. Kabod is the Hebrew word. And then we've got gloria and then doxa. There are various words if you translate to the Greek. What does glory mean? It means transcendent splendor. You and I can maybe look at something and we say, well, that's glorious. Well, we, use the, we can use that word rather flippantly, can't we? When we look at something. But friends, glory, we could only say, we could say this, all glory belongs to God. And I suppose anything we might even make, it might be wonderful. But who gives us the ability to make those things? Who spoke substance into matter? We know that the scientists tell us matter can neither be created or destroyed. It either turns into a liquid, a solid, or a gas, doesn't it? But God brought all substance into being. And when we see created order, when we see the heavens and the earth, we see a, a leaf. I mean, we can study, we can spend our whole lives learning about a leaf learning about a single leaf. But think of the whole of the, 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 the cosmos, how glorious it is, and yet how much more infinitely glorious God is. God could speak, if he will, countless universes into being. God is outside of all these things. These things are contained in him. He says, heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Even the heavens, he says in Isaiah, cannot contain him. We, we can't fathom that. And David, does he not say in Psalm 139, Thou knowest my thoughts afar off. That has nothing to do with distance, but it has to do with a knowledge. God's knowledge. Because God has determined the future. It boggles the mind, doesn't it? It's unsearchable. His ways past finding out. And God devised a way to save idolatrous man. I mean, it, it's amazing that God should have anything to do with an idolater. Isn't it? But you see, all glory is God's. And now if we're saved, why are we saved? What is the chief end of man? We should know it. It's in the catechism, isn't it? The chief end of man is to know God and to glorify him forever. If you just turn to Jeremiah 9, and, and we have it there in verse 23 and 24, th this is something that is, is wonderful that we, we ought to think, what should a man glory in? Man often glories in himself. Uh, what did Paul say? God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but notice this, Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the wise man Glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. I, that I am the Lord. 
It, it's the word Jehovah, the self-existent God, or Yahweh, if you like, the tetragrammaton. You see, this is the greatest thing to know God, isn't it? And to know him as our Lord and as our Savior. And it is the glory of God to save unworthy wretches. And God says, I want you to notice, all glory is his. He says, and I will not give to another. God has decreed it and determined it that he will not give his glory to his creatures. Glory belongs to God, doesn't it? One day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will not give his glory to another. And it glorifies God. You know, some people think, and it's true, it almost seems that the way of salvation is too good to believe. But our God, we're told in Psalm 72, only doeth wondrous things. It is amazing, isn't it? Who would have devised such a plan to save an unworthy people? But the Lord says, I am the Lord. Does he not say, is there anything too hard for me? You know, it was often said by scholars of old that it was Socrates that came up with the method of teaching by questions. And they call it the Socratic method, but it was God. Socrates didn't invent teaching, but God gets us to think, is there anything too hard for him? He who spoke the world into being, the cosmos, and well, I look at my own poor heart and I think, how could I be here? How could I even be preaching the word of God? Who would use me? Well, God did. Because he chooses the things that are not. The shame, the things that are. You see, if we make much of God, he can't use those who glory in themselves. My friends, I ascribe all knowledge and wisdom that I may ever have, and I know my knowledge and my wisdom is very poor. But you know, it's true for every child of God, whatever he calls us to do. Can any man boast? If God has called us to do this or that, the sufficiency, as Paul says, is of God. It's not of us, is it? So whatever God has called you to do, he will receive the glory. And the first lesson is this. Remember, all glory is God's and you are his new creature if you're in Christ. And God has called you. We could take this as a text if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, notice the verse 31. The Corinthians, they boasted in much, didn't they? The gifts that they had, abilities. They, some boasted in Cephas, some in Apollos and so on. But you know, what did he say? In verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we are his, we are new creatures. He's put us into the family of God. He's put us into the church. And our whole lives now should be one expression of doing everything to the glory of God. Shouldn't it be? Isn't it wonderful to live for God? There's an old hymn in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, we're reminded there, a lowly man he that is humble need fear no fall. That's part of the words of that song. There's a little song in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and it's true. 
He that glories in himself is sure to fall, but he that glories in God will never fall. Well, glory is God's. And look at the assertion here. Look at the guarantee that God gives. I will not give my glory to another. I am the Lord, that is my name. Or I am Jehovah, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. You think of it, salvation is a tremendous thing, isn't it? We thought of it this morning. Even how God's people in Isaiah 30, they were caught between a a, a rock and a hard spot. They were in a fix. Of course, they got themselves in that mess. But how gracious and how glorious God is, even despite their backslidings, even despite their sin. He says, look to me and be ye saved. When the people even groaned against Moses and they confessed how gracious and glorious God was. Uh, We're told in, in, in the Proverbs how Proverbs 19 verse 11, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. How much more God? You think of how it is man's glory to pass over a transgression. My, we, we admire people, don't we, who are loving and forgiving toward others. And we as Christians are commanded to forgive one another. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us. But think of the vast plethora of our transgressions and all of our lives. And even despite God giving us light and knowledge, and sometimes, so often, we fail to take his advice, we fail to take his, him at his word, and yet he says, seek me. And you will not find me in vain. He forgiveth and forgiveth again, doesn't he? It's God's glory to pass over a transgression. You think of how many transgressions he has passed over. Then he has laid out transgressions upon Christ. My friends, this is not a religion of works. This is not a religion for the strong, is it? That's the religions of this world. You've got to work. You've got to climb so many steps. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And there's no rest. There's no rest, is there, for those who will seek a salvation by works. But God says, look to me. Look to my son. He will bring in deliverance even to the Gentiles who are far away. Those who have been laid low. The humble, the poor, the bruised reed. Shall he not break the smoking flax? Shall he not quench? He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Why? Because he bears their trouble, he bears their sin, and he brings in deliverance. You see, friends, how can we glory in ourselves when we are nothing before God? What is man? He is but a vapor. What are you and I? We build something. We even have to thank God for giving us the strength to build it, for giving us the knowledge for giving us the air to breathe, everything that we've built, really has ultimately come from God, from the substance that he has made. And maybe even whatever we build is not going to last. Is it? We might build a house, we might build a mansion, we might build a lake, but these things will pass. But you know what God does? There's a lovely verse in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. What God does, he does forever. We read in Ecclesiastes Chapter 3, and by the way, 
Solomon in chapter 1, chapter 2, he sees everything under the sun is but vanity. Vanity of vanities. That is life under the sun without any comprehension or true giving of one's life to God and serving God. A man after all his labors, what does he have? He can't take it with him. And the eye is never filled or satisfied. The ear is never filled. Pride is never satisfied. The eye is never satisfied. He tries to find happiness. Chapter 2, even in myrrh, he can't find the meaning of life. Life seems to be a moral maze, but you get to chapter 3. And then he says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Under the heaven, friends, God, as he looks beyond the sun, he sees there is an eternal God who has given a time, verse 2, to be born, a time to die. God has planned and fixed everything in our lives, isn't he? Our first birth and our second birth, we sometimes sing, don't we? These were all fixed and decreed by God, weren't they? And you come to the end and you, you notice in the verse 11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of his labor, it is the gift of God. Now notice, and I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Now notice, nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Think of it. Who made you to fear God? Theologians said, to know God is to fear God. It's to have a filial fear for God. To really know God, you have a right apprehension for him. He is the infinite. And you are, you are a finite creature, but he has given you a never-dying soul. And that soul will live forever and forever. And if he has made you to fear him, that cannot be taken away. Notice that which has been now and that which he hath already been, God requireth that which is past. He says here in verse 14, and what God does, he does forever. If he's given you a fearing heart, that's mercy. The psalmist says, there is mercy with the Lord that he may be what? Feared. You see, when you realize, if you are an awakened sinner, awakened to this world of vanity, of foolishness and idolatry that makes everything of man and nothing of God, when you're awakened to that, you're awakened out of the stupor, the man is living in this pretension that there is no God. The fool is said in his heart, not his head. It's a heart problem. There is no God. But when you're awakened to this, you realize God has done something so merciful in your heart so that you fear him and you love him. And what do you want to do? You want to glorify him, don't you? You want to honor him all the days of your life. You want to... 
live for him. What does Solomon get to at the close of the book of Ecclesiastes? He says, what is the whole conclusion of this? This was his swan song, Ecclesiastes. Hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. What is it to fear God? To love him. To never, it's not a fear as you're fearing a bully or a thug, is it? But you don't want to put a frown on that lovely face of our God that he would ever frown upon you. If he has shown you the love of Jesus Christ and saved you a wretch so that he would come to the world and live for you and die for you and so that you just carry on in your own sweet way in this world. To fear God is to love him. What is the moral essence and directive of the law? What is it? We should know it. To love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulfillment of the law, isn't it? And you see, to fear God is one to give him the glory that is due to his name. How could you despise or so lightly esteem such a God who came to give his life for his people who he has revealed himself to. This is our God. And if we're Christians, Paul says, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, let us do it to the glory of God. If we go out and we evangelize to the lost, my friends, let me say to you, I am not a humanist. Why do we primarily go and we evangelize to the lost? For the glory of God. Because the Lamb should have the glory. The Lamb who gave his life for a multitude of people. And we cannot bear that men blaspheme his name. We cannot bear the fact that they live upon his planet and they mock him and they ridicule the name of the Son of God. We cannot bear that the church, the name of the church, is dragged in the mud. That's why we should live to the glory of God, because we bear God's name, don't we? We bear Christ's name. And so we evangelize, not primarily because we want men saved. And it's, it's good we should want men saved. Please don't get me wrong. But we should go out for the glory of God. Just close with this. Isaiah, in the 64th chapter, it's called the Classicus Locus on Revival. And it's a well-known text, really, and it has to do with salvation. And we can sort of hear the words now, and there's a lot to learn from this passage. Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. It's a picture of Sinai. Remember, when the God appeared at Sinai, and the law was given, and the nation trembled. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire cometh, uh, causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known 
to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. You see, so that the nations might truly give God the glory when thou didst terrible things which we look not for. Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. But here's what's the whole reason Isaiah is saying this. Why, God, are we praying that you would rend the heavens so the nations might tremble, so that man may give God glory? But then now you see the gospel is introduced. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what thou hast prepared for them that waiteth for him. We have it in the New Testament. Don't we? Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for them that love him. But you see that the, the primary cause here and the primary reason is that people might give God the reverence. You know, there's a kind of cheap, easy salvation that is being preached today, my friends, and it's this. Get to God. Or people say something like this. Oh, you need to be saved so that you go to heaven. Well, my friends, that's a rather defunct and defective salvation, don't you think? Why should we be saved? To give God glory. To glorify the God of heaven and earth. Who says, my glory will I not give to another. We live for him. I thank God that he's glorious. He's not a small God, is he? But he's a God that is worthy to be praised. And his word says God is to be had in reverence by all them that are about him. And friends, everything we do, may this be a a wonderful text, maybe not your motto text this year as a church, but everything you do in your personal life, in your home, in your family, and everything you decide to do, any advancement you do and make in the Christian life, why should you do it not for yourself, but for the glory of God? Because he has been so gloriously merciful, hasn't he? To us who deserve the fires of hell. That's what we deserve. But in the riches of his grace, He gave us his son. And you know what God has said? I will not give it. The man who will not give God the glory will be humbled one day. But they that lightly esteem me, the Lord will lightly esteem. Let us give him the glory, the honor, and all that we say and do, friends. I pray God will help us in this endeavor. And may he save souls to the glory of his name and to the good and blessing of those dear souls. We're not humanists, but we're those who love God and want to see him glorified even in the wonderful saving of many souls. We will rejoice with all the angels of heaven with them over even one sinner. Because you know what? Even in that, what does he say here? I will open up the eyes of the blind. Who does it? God does it. He brings the new heart. He brings the new birth, doesn't he? And he takes us to take his word out. May God help us to glorify his name. What a New Year's resolution. Many people have resolutions. 
but it should be one really resolve for us whatever I do whatever you do let us do it for his glory for surely he is a glorious God amen